Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I think there's probably too many people working in the finance industry right now. I think a lot of these people that that are writing that passive investing is Marxism and this stuff, I think a lot of these active managers are really just nervous for their jobs. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Full disclosure, joining us from Grand Rapids, Michigan, gorgeous Grand Rapids, Michigan. Do you guys drink Verner's over there? <laughs> Fago? <laughs> you know, there's a big debate between whether to call it pop or soda between myself and the, my New York crew at work, so um, I'm not sure. As usual, I digress. That is the voice of Ben Carlson, CFA. He's Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He authored the book and the blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. I adore your work, your analysis. I'm a frequent retweeter, and I figured I would holler out at you with a direct message and see if you'd come on my humble broadcast, sir. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Talk to me about this market. It's a meaning of life question, and I know you get accosted with this daily. Uh, on the one hand, you have all these people out there uh, warning us about P.E. multiples on the S&P 500 at levels unseen since the turn of the century. Y2K, they're telling us that no asset is undervalued. Every stone has been unturned. Real estate has been reinflated again. And yet you can't get any money on your cash. We're overdue for a massive correction, the likes of which we have not had since 2011. So what the heck is an individual investor to do? Well, I, I think the, the biggest question for people is to to understand the difference between a change in expectations and a change in strategy. So, I mean, the, the easiest thing for most people to do is understand that, well, things have been going really well so far, you know, especially in U.S. markets for quite some time now. So the the old um, mean reversion play is, is obviously where, you know, above average returns will eventually lead to below average returns. Um, so, so I think it, it makes sense for people to really, you know, temper their expectations as far as, as what to do it's it, it really depends but um it's 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 you know it's it's a hard market because you could have said the same thing that's been going on since you know 2011 2012 interest rates are low valuations are high now what do i do so it's it's hasn't been the easiest market and uh, i think it's it's been almost harder for professionals than it has been for individuals even now i know you're a young guy but i'm old enough to remember when they were talking about the horsemen of technology back at the turn of the century with Yahoo and AOL and um, you know eBay and and whatnot, and now we see the likes of Facebook and Amazon. They're called the Fangs, right? Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, <laughs> Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google. It is routine to see companies with half a trillion dollar valuations. Like I never would have imagined Amazon or Facebook eclipsing that level so quickly out of the gate. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy, and and it's something that a lot of people are worried about. So I did a Bloomberg piece uh, a couple weeks ago where I talked about how all these companies, Apple and Amazon and Facebook, are all up over thirty percent, and they account for something like a third of the gain in the S and P five hundred. Um, and so everyone, of course, is now hearkening back to those days, like you said, in the late nineties, where the tech bubble really took off. Um, it, it is a little crazy, but you know, things I think are a little different this time. And and back then, we we really didn't have any earnings or businesses backing up a lot of those ideas. It really was just ideas. 
and um, and, and so that's why things deflated so quickly. Um, but but I think the stat that I gave um, in my Bloomberg piece is that there is something like five times as much earnings in the top ten technology stocks as there were in the '90s. So yes, things have have been pretty good in that space lately. But I think there's actually some some good businesses behind these these days, and then I don't think they're all really just tech stocks anymore. I think they they have sort of gone into the consumer realm as well. And I believe at the beginning of the last decade, it's like I, I wrote a big story for Business Week on, on the blue chip blues and why big U.S. companies after uh, the disastrous bubble-like conditions in the year 2000 just were not getting time of day from investors. And they've been vindicated and then some. And now the amazing thing is that emerging markets and, and Europe and all the, the hot destinations of the middle part of the last decade are not getting time of day. So you wonder about meme reversion again. Yeah. And I, I mean, you, you kind of asked what to do. The thing is, everyone has sort of, you know, been watching U.S. markets kill everything for the last basically seven or eight years. Um, if you go back to to um, the last decade, European stocks are in a lost decade. They've, they've gone nowhere, while U.S. stocks are up 100 um, percent. Emerging market stocks are actually down over the last sort of call it eight or nine years. So um, the, the simple thing for people to do probably these days is diversify globally, which is not that easy because you see something that's done well in the U.S. stocks and you see something over on the other side that's done poorly in foreign stocks. And it's not easy to sort of rebalance into that pain. Well, why, why do we need to rebalance? I mean, there's that Jack Bogle school of thought that says you, know, you hear it a million times. The S&P 500 itself is sufficiently diversified globally. It gets upwards of 40, 45 percent of its its earnings abroad. Why do you have to go and reinvent the wheel and um, you know, buy small cap assets in Europe and in emerging markets? Do you do you know what I'm saying? I mean, there is that controversy and it kind of gets into Wonkistan, but yeah. the S&P 500, it's a pretty solid mousetrap. Well, yeah. I mean, diversification is, they, they say it's the only free lunch in finance, but it, it kind of takes a long time to cook. And so if you look at something like the S&P, they had their own lost decade in the sort of 2008-2009 ending 10-year period where, where emerging markets and foreign stocks did much better. So, so I think it's more about knowing yourself as an investor and can you stick with a period like that without sort of capitulating at the bottom and saying, get me out of here and making a huge mistake. So the whole point of diversification is just trying to, you know, trying to, su- you know, supplant your own ignorance basically of, of the future because we have no idea what's going to happen. And, and I think diversifying globally is a way to say, you know, I think people around the world want to get better, but the, the fact that these markets trade in different cycles means that you can kind of balance out the flows and the, the sort of ups and downs that happen. Now, Ben, a question that I always pose to great investors, I veer into kind of personal life territory, but it's especially relevant with you now that you have uh, newborn twins, right? And I can put you on the spot and say T minus 18 to college. What do you do if newborn, if, if these kids are born into what is qualitatively and quantitatively a quote-unquote overvalued market. How do you plan for that yeah. kind of realm? How do you look, you, you open up a 529 and say, well, I can't time the market. I'm also, you know, in, in your book, I'm reading about these things. There's no point in timing the market. Um, you can husband cash. If you are an adult investor, you can go to bonds. But what do you do as a parent? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the biggest thing that I always tell people is that the, the best investment you can ever make is just to save more money. And no one really wants to hear that because it's it's hard and, and people would rather find a lottery ticket stock or something to to make all their troubles go away. But, you know, you know, personal finance is, is much more important for most people than than investing. And I think a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their minds around that. So um, but yeah, by the time I figure by the time my 
twins. They're three weeks old now. By the time they get to age 18, college will either be, you know, well into the six figures. It'll be free. So I don't know if if the uh, <laughs> if the Bernie bros take over and they make college free. So but basically, I'm just going to have to save and uh, otherwise hope they get some scholarships. But I think that's the thing that people have to have to do, you know, for retirement as well is just realize that if if markets aren't going to provide the same returns they have in the past, um, and that's a very good possibility that uh, you need to save some more money or work longer or uh, potentially find some other sources of income. Find a good blood bank. <laughs> yeah, that works too. I mean, that is it is it is very hard to do in that, yes, cash is cash, but cash has also been yielding nothing now for the better part of a decade. And I just saw a link this morning that Goldman Sachs... <laughs> <laughs> the bank of Goldman Sachs is coming out with a super saver rate on a CD of 1.2%. Run, don't walk. How do I hold my nose and do that? How do I I don't I don't I I don't buy that in, you know, whatever inflation statistic that the BLS or whoever is reporting, I feel like I'm losing money in real terms if I leave it in cash. Yeah, I th- I think we're almost to the point where and it would be life would be great if we could just have those six or five or six percent treasury yields like they had in the 1990s and and all would be good and we could earn sort of this this risk-free return um but we have to invest in the markets sort of as they are not as we wish they would be and so the way that our firm looks at it is that you know everyone is really scared of volatility and we think that that volatility is one of the more misunderstood um elements in the market so these days if you want to earn a return on your capital you're going to have to accept some volatility so the point is, you know, where are you being paid to take volatility and where are you taking too much where it's not helping you? And I think the other side of that with your cash equation, it's kind of like a barbell approach where if you have these these liquid needs, if, if your kids are going to go to college in the next few years, um, you probably shouldn't have a lot of that money in stocks and you should have it in something safe, even though you're not earning anything on it. Um, it's it's kind of painful, but, you know, the, the alternative of seeing stocks crater right before you need that money um, is would make things even worse. So, so I think it's it's almost where there, there's not much middle ground. You either have to accept a lot of volatility to earn some return, or you have to accept none and realize that you're going to probably lose to inflation, but still have some safety. Mr. Carlson, what the heck is volatility? I don't even know what that is. I saw in a column of yours that uh, when the United States had its credit downgraded back in, in August of 2011, in a six-day stretch, the S&P 500 Day one fell 4.78%. The next day it was flat. The day after that it fell nearly 7%. The day after that it was up 5%. The day after that it was almost down 5%. The day after that it was up almost 5%. We haven't seen that feeling, that spirit here for the longest time. And I do worry about complacency on, on the on the flip side of this, in that I do remember um, the autumn of 2008 up until about March 2009, all of my coworkers coming to me and saying that we were going to be in lines eating cat food and there was no point in being in stocks and that should have been the cue to put everything in stocks. And now we just see all this evidence that kind of volatility is bunk. Even even the master investor Jeremy Grantham is seemingly thrown in the towel. It's it's pretty crazy. And, and I think going back to that 2011 period, I think people forget how how scary that was. We were still so close to the precipice of that 2009 where, uh, you know, I think people did think that things were going to go down. And if the Fed didn't step in and maybe change some rules or back up the system, I think it, we could have seen another Great Depression. But, um, you know, having said that, that that didn't happen and, and things turned around and things look fine. But, yeah, now it's it's hard to believe in that short period of time now we've gone to this. This is likely the, you know, the the least volatile economic 
and market regime we've ever been in for this past sort of eight or nine years. And it's it's crazy. We haven't had a 5% correction since summer of 2016. It's the uh, longest such stretch since 1996. Um, so it, it, it is possible that complacency hits and we have that Minsky moment where people are sort of, you know, taking it easy too much and, and things take a turn for the worse because, you know, the the stock market going down and fluctuating is just that's just par for the course. So I had another piece where I looked at the the annual drawdown since 1950 in the S&P 500 and you know every year the average fall from peak to trough was likely something like 14%. This year we've seen, you know, a 2 or 3% fall from the the peak. So um, even if stocks end up in positive territory for the remainder of the year or for the next few years we should expect to see some some losses along the way. Full disclosure, we are talking to Ben, a wealth of common sense. Carlson joining us from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is with Ritholtz Wealth Management. You see his bylines all over the Twitter sphere and on Bloomberg. Uh, I am curious, sir, about this bond bull market, which has been raging now really quietly um, for now, what is it, 35, 36 years? And you talk about complacency. I don't know many older people on bond trading desks that remember a bond bloodbath like a 1994, much less what happened in the late 70s and early 80s. And there's all sorts of money that went into junk and high quality credit. And and that carcass has kind of been picked on. And yet, no volatility, it looks like, in the fixed income realm. Well, and the, the crazy thing about the bond bull market is that the last time we had a bear market in the bonds, which was pretty much the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, you know, things like high yield didn't exist. So people trying to figure out what's going to happen when that, you know, eventually happens and we have a sustained rate rise. There's so many asset classes out there, and I'd I put REITs in as another one. That yeah, really REITs. Been- Nobody talks about REITs. That's been, I saw something in like the loose hold catalog that they've returned on average a crazy number since March 2009, and even if you go to the turn of the century, way outperformed the S&P 500. Aren't re- don't things fall apart in REIT land as well? Well, it's, it's possible. I mean, that there's a little more income there, but and those are more equity-like. But yeah, the, there's a lot of these these things, and I put private equity in that boat too, where we have these over-leveraged vehicles that that you know pretty much bank on interest rates going down or staying low. And what happens when they go up? And I don't think anyone really knows. The the thing about the bond bear market is, especially if you look at something like treasuries, that's interesting, though. Um, they actually didn't lose money. They they went from 3% to 15% if you start from the 50s and go all the way to early 1981. Um, nominally, they actually made money. It was inflation-adjusted where you got killed. So you were down roughly 40% inflate in an inflation-adjusted term. So I think the biggest risk to to bonds really is not necessarily that interest rates rise, because if rates rise, eventually you're going to be earning more money on that income. You're going to lose some money in the short term, but over the long term, you'll make a little more. So the big problem for the bond market is going to be if we see a sustained rise in inflation where people just get crushed on a real basis. Where the heck is inflation? Because I, I look at the you know the number that hit the tape yesterday, uh, joblessness at a 16-year low, stock market at an all-time high. Um, you see speculation back in real estate. Um, there are flippers in the midst, a lot of people buying homes with 80% cash down. I mean, doesn't the Fed have every justification in the world under Janet Yellen to come in and, and ratchet up rates by, say, a half a point at a time? Well, yeah, well, it is kind of crazy that that people worry about seeing rates go up a quarter of a percent or a half a percent. Um, I mean, I remember people worrying about hyperinflation in 2010, 2011, when rates were, you know, 
we're, we're still coming down much further than they have now. So, um, it is kind of crazy that we've got to that point where people assume the, the market can't handle it, but, um, I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm not much of any an economist, but I think the the big thing that that's going to take to see you know inflation pressure is just going to be wages going up, which is something that a lot of people have dealt with for a long time now, where wage, wages are just in stagnant. So I think if we eventually see that, and I think you, you would imagine once the we're at sort of this full employment, you know, the unemployment rate can't go down much further than than it is. Um, you would hope that wages would eventually go up to sort of you know since the labor has a little more bargaining power that that something would finally happen but uh it's i think it's it's fooled a lot of people hoping un, thinking that the fed's balance sheet is going to cause this massive deflation um and it just hasn't happened but i think because a lot of people misunderstand what exactly it is they did now ben you've you've written quite a bit on the the virtues of simplicity you've quoted albert einstein um i do see in your work that you flicked at uh vanguards simple solution. It had around $2 trillion in assets in 2011, which is nothing to kind of, you know, scoff at. But that number now is over $4 trillion. And that money is just sluiced and sluiced in, I think. I don't know. I'm, I don't if know if investors are just capitulating and saying, if you can't beat the market, just be the market. If they're tired of the Fidelities and the T. Rowe prices and the Putnams of the world. Uh, but that is, I mean, to say that that's been a beneficiary of the disruption in finance is an understatement. I mean, that money just keeps coming in and it's making ETFs and indexes writ large a, an overweighted asset class. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. And the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, financial writers um, and columnists and pundits have been telling the normal person for years, put your money in low cost index funds, just don't look at it, set it aside and you'll be fine. And now that people have started to do that, people are saying, wait, what does this mean? <laughs> now what's going to happen? And and I, I think the, you know, people worry about what's going to happen, you know, the next time a bear market hits and it's possible that people will bail. But but I think the, the larger point here from an industry perspective is that all these people piling into ETFs and index funds and quantitative funds, um, I think there's probably too many people working in the finance industry right now. I think a lot of these people that that are writing that passive investing is Marxism and this stuff. I think a lot of these active managers are really just nervous for their jobs, and you know I think rightly so. I think that there's probably too many people in the investment management industry that have been earning high fees and not really, you know. Has you know, anyone really has anyone done any sort of back of the envelope calculation and how much of that? kind of residual rump remains? I mean, just on the people out there, I don't want to call them the dumb money disdainfully that just don't bother checking. They know that they're in actively managed mutual funds. Maybe it charges them 120 basis points. And what overall on, a, on an asset base kind of money is, is wasted every year? And I'm looking at that both in terms of the opportunity cost for investors and the opportunity for someone like a Vanguard. Well, I, I, there there was a study by one of my colleagues at Bloomberg, um, Eric Eric Belchunas, who who said he thinks that that Bogle has probably saved investors, you know, something like a trillion dollars in in his time, and, and Bogle said he he probably agrees with that. So that's just Jack the Bogle, the founder the founder of Vanguard. Yeah, yeah, sorry, and and so you know when you when you consider that you know there's still a majority of people in active funds. It's something like two thirds active, one third passive in, in the U.S. As much. There's much more active globally, actually, but uh, so it's still a wide majority that are in active funds, and the average, you know, mutual fund charges one percent or so, um, while that you can get a passive fund for for um, you know cents on the dollar. So it's 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 hard to imagine how much money has been transferred from people to uh, the investment industry. Ben, talk to me about the Rorschach that is Apple stock. 
um, now near an all-time high. It's husbanding something like $255 billion in cash, which is unthinkable if you think about where Apple was 20 years ago with Steve Jobs asking Bill Gates for a bailout. Um, and this company was maybe 90 days to bankruptcy, had nothing going on, and how absolutely dominant it is right now and how that cash keeps tallying up. When you look at this company, when you back out the cash, is it still an undervalued company? Is it a is it a company that you can't value? Is it a company that cannot be put up apples and apples against traditional technology like IBM or, I don't know, another software or hardware player? I just don't know how to look at it. Yeah, no, it's it's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's, you know, one of the largest companies in the world and there are, you know, dozens and dozens of analysts that watch this thing and and put their own models together. And it, it's just, mm. it's so hard to tell, you know, what exactly they're going to do with that because, um, especially in the consumer technology space, things change so quickly. So, I mean, they have, you know, they're probably the most amazing company in my lifetime. Um, but, but I think what's really going to, you know, matter is, is how they, you know, how they see things through if something goes wrong and if they have a misstep. Um, I saw they, they released the, the marshmallow speaker the other day, um, to go in against Alexa. But I honestly, it, it kind of falls into my too hard pile of, you know, understanding, you know, what's going to happen. I remember buying the stock after, after jobs died. I remember people thought the company was over when he, when he died and Tim Cook took over. Um, and I, I held it for a few years and sold it a few years later. But, um, I, I just find that company in the, in my too hard pile. It's one of those things where it could be continue to be the most amazing company in the world, but the stock doesn't do anything. Um, or it could be our first trillion dollar company. I just, I honestly have no idea. Well, you can't really avoid it because it is the biggest weighting of of any stock in the world. In the S&P 500, if you look at the MSCI World Index, it's kind of hard to kind of avoid it. It's it's massive. It's like Jupiter in our solar system. Yeah. And, and that's kind of one of the reasons I think active management has been so hard, especially for the past this past cycle, because um, if you simply underweighted a company like that or like Amazon or Facebook, you know, you've gotten destroyed. And I think that's actually one of the virtues of indexing. You're, you're basically buying this huge momentum fund and you're going to get those best companies that sort of carry the weight every single year. Um, and, and so you're right, it is hard to ignore, but I, but I think if you, if you go back to my sort of simplification idea, if, if you just try to own everything, you don't have to worry about it, I guess. And, and that's, that's harder for people in the industry to sort of wrap their minds around because they assume they're smarter than everyone else and they can, they can figure out whether Apple is over or undervalued. Um, that one has always just sort of fallen in my too hard pile. Um, so I, I honestly don't know. Now, what 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 is owning everything mean? I go back to business school and they taught us the efficient frontier. And in theory, if you could own a little bit of every possible asset in the world, I'm talking about Haas avocados, alpacas in Peru, gold, you know, miners, collection agencies, Filipino construction companies. You could, but in reality, it's impossible. Uh, with transaction costs and to find a Sherpa to do that and the securitization of certain assets and liquidity. But we can approximate it with um, benchmarks. I mean, one of the amazing, and again, we are veering way into Wonkistan, but that's the beauty of having somebody like you on. And and we'll have Batnik on in the future. Um, can you do that? Are you impressed at something like a Vanguard Total Fund, a VT, uh, that aspires to have like 5,000 securities inside a single ETF, which is hyper-liquid, um, really replicates that? 
Well, it is pretty crazy. That's why I, I think that now is probably the, the greatest time ever to be an investor, especially an individual investor, because you can buy, like you said, the whole market. You can buy the world stock market for, for five or seven basis points. Um, it's it's truly amazing. And I think the way that I look at it is, you know, you're never going to be able to own everything because, you know, there's venture capital and private equity and private real estate. So so getting truly passive and owning everything is is kind of a myth. But I, but I think the point of diversification is just that you 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 get rid of specific risk in your portfolio. So you own enough that you're not going to be taken down based on a single bad bet. So, you know, you're giving up on the home runs, but you're also avoiding the strikeouts and when you diversify. It's very hard to uh, explain that to an investor who wants to clean up his portfolio or finally get started that, you know, the rule of 72, that something as unsexy as 7.2% a year compounded over a decade will double your money. Uh, people do want to go for the home runs. They disproportionately want to talk about the Teslas and the Facebooks. Yeah, it's and we have that lottery ticket mentality. It's, it's interesting. People... Um, People love to win money and they hate to lose, so it's that's why we buy insurance and lottery tickets. Is the quote I heard this week? Um, but but I think it's yeah. It's, there's there's so much do that um, can trip people up psychologically investing. So I think for people like that that just need that that sort of you know uh, that shot in the arm that you get when you when you try to you know pick a big winner. I think you know you take five or ten percent of your portfolio and you have some fun with it. And then you you be intelligent about the rest of your portfolio and and don't do anything too irrational. So so I think that's kind of a, a good way to you know balance things out psychologically so you don't completely take yourself down, but you give yourself a chance to sort of hit your home run. Ben, to what extent do you buy the the kind of the DFA the dimensional funds, um, you know, um, RAFI school of thought where you shouldn't just be passive when it comes to passive. There's a smarter way to be passive. Fundamental indexing or um, taking advantage of, for example, the value gap or the small cap premium. Do you think that in the end, uh, that's something that it pays for an investor to study and implement? Yeah, you know, I've, I've never been one of these people who, who takes things to the extremes and thinks that you have to be all or nothing. So I think that, you know, an intelligent portfolio design can include index funds and factor funds. And I think the, you really just have to understand what you're getting into. But I think even if those sort of long-term premiums, like the small cap premium value, momentum, all these you know high-quality stocks, even if something like that doesn't work, quote-unquote, in the future where you're not going to get 1% or 2% above the market, um, even if it just sort of matches the market or does a little better, you're still going to get diversification benefits where some of those perform differently at different times. And I think that balance can sort of help an investor stick with something. And then, as we talked about earlier, you rebalance into the pain and can maybe, you know, earn some some extra few basis points here and there by buying something that's unloved and selling something that's been doing great and uh, play that mean reversion. So I, so I think it I think there's probably people who are who are, you know, zealots of these sort of things and only believe in one thing or another. I've, I've never really thought that, that was the best way to manage your money. I think you should be flexible and open to a lot of different um, viewpoints and diversify by strategy as well. So I think those things have a place in a portfolio as long as you understand the sort of pros and cons. Uh, to what extent is China on your mind? And China is something that could be argued, if you look at the Jim Chano school of thought, as the biggest bubble of all time, um, one that would, would splatter all sorts of radioactivity on every emerging market out there and inevitably take down the U.S. economy as well. Well, it's, 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 I think it's going to be a grand experiment to see what happens. You know, their, their sort of demographics are pretty poor. Um, they've obviously, people have been talking about the quote-unquote hard landing for a number of years now. Um, and I think a lot of it 
sort of already came to fruition where commodities just got shellacked for the last, you know, seven or eight years. Um, you know, the commodity index is down 50% from, from the highs still. Um, so, so I think a lot of that has sort of already come to play and emerging markets have been hurt. But, um, you know, I think that that's just going to be a grand experiment of how their sort of form of government works out and, and what it means, you know, for not only their citizens, but for the world. It's, 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 uh, it's crazy. I think some people place too much weight on, on what could happen with China and some people not enough. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see if they ever sort of turn their markets around and make things a little more easier for, for capital to come in there. Well, because we we have not, certainly not in the WTO era or looking back even to Tiananmen Square, you know, that was this week in 1989, seeing China in its kind of, you know, 10-ton elephant phase have a hard landing. Right. It, and, and the crazy thing, if you're looking at it from an investor's perspective, um, you know, they've had unbelievable growth for the last three decades, you know call it, you know, whatever, eight or 9% a year and investors in the stock market there have lost money. So it's, it's hard to know what it really means for investors. Obviously the economy matters. Um, but it, but the sort of rules of law and, and how they sort of, um, allocate to the markets and, and how forgiving they are to capital really matters as well. I mean, that is a centrally planned economy. That is where the government controls the purse strings of the banks. The government can, coming out of the global financial crisis, say, in three years, um, earmark more cement to projects and high-speed rail and and ghost cities in China than was used in the entire 20th century in the U.S. Yeah, it's crazy. That's why I think. I mean, they're they're so large now, and they've they've obviously they obviously did things pretty well for a while. Um, but I mean, you know, no one knows how much to believe about their numbers. You know, they, they are the Jack Welch of, of GDP numbers. They, they're able to just, you know, say whatever they want and that's how much growth they had and throw money at stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how long they can throw money at stuff to, uh, keep things churning along. But this sounds mercenary then. Um, I, I saw this in a Grant's interest rate observer or something to show you what a dork I am. What's that called? Four or five years ago. That it's not so bad, the prospect of a hard landing for China. If you want to be totally mercenary and heartless, that imagine what it would do to commodity prices. You could see 99 cent gasoline again. You could see uh, copper prices collapse. You could see um, the foot taken off the gas in terms of... Uh, uh, grains and all these things that China has been consuming voraciously because of an aggressively centrally planned economy. Yeah, and I, and I think we've already seen some of that. You you remember GMOs, Jeremy Grantham in 2011, 2012 was was planning on uh, a huge commodity bubble, and we've had just the opposite. He was he was banking on them to shoot higher, and um, commodities have been one of the the worst asset classes in all of investing in the last you know five or six years. So I think a lot of that is already deflated. So I think it, it it really depends on, you know, how much of China's said growth has actually been happening for what they've been quoted at and, and what has actually been happening. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely the elephant in the room, I'd say. Uh, ben, in the few minutes we have left, five or six minutes or so, I, I want to get your thoughts on the potential for uh, something beautiful out of left field akin to what the internet was maybe in 1993 and 1994. And people are whispering about clean tech, about the huge strides being made in solar and the prices falling. And and obviously, Elon Musk and Tesla at an all-time high, he's captured the imagination about the electric car and, um, you know, uh, tiles on your roof that aren't eyesores that can be great, and this is a great battery pack. Are we maybe on the cusp of something internet-like 
uh, with respect to clean tech that can bring down prices, um, help us in terms of uh, carbon capture and carbon avoidance. Do you ever wonder about that? Well, I think the I think one of the most interesting things to see play out over the next decade is going to be this sort of technology Silicon Valley optimism versus um, finance uh, New York pessimism. It seems like everyone in Silicon Valley assumes that the world is going to be a great place and they're going to solve all the problems. And everyone in the finance world assumes that none of this is ever going to come to fruition and these companies are all just being propped up. Um, so I think it. I, I read the Musk uh, biography by, by uh, I think, Ashley, Ashley Vance. Vance. Yeah. 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 Which was a, which is a great. And I came away a huge believer in him. I said, I want to buy a Tesla after I read that. But, uh, you know, I, I think I wouldn't be surprised either way if, if that company was out of business in the, the next decade or whether it sort of revolutionized the entire auto industry. Um, he's sort of that kind of guy who, who flies, you know, so close to the edge that anything could happen. Um, so, so I think the, that tug of war is going to be really, really interesting to see play out over the next decade. I honestly am not smart enough to know who is going to win that one, but, um, I guess I would have a hard time betting against Mr. Musk. You know, I hear so much about Elon Musk and, uh, Jeff Bezos, um, the Amazon.com founder was now within, I think, $2 billion of being the world's richest man. Uh, it is unbelievable that he's worth about $85 billion. It's unbelievable that he has disrupted brick and mortars to the extent that we've seen. I mean, Sears yesterday announced the closure of another 66 stores. Macy's is sucking wind. J. Crew got rid of its CEO. No one in retail seems to know what to do. Uh, and I, I step back and I think about these guys. There's a lot of single man risk in these massive entities. I mean, would you buy Tesla without Elon Musk at its helm? Would you buy Amazon.com without Jeff Bezos at the helm? That's true. Yeah, that there's kind of the, you know, what would happen if they stepped off of a curb and got hit by a bus? That's a, that's a huge risk. I think a lot of people don't, don't oh, think about. Oh, we get about. hit by a self-driving Tesla truck, more like it, right? True. <laughs> yes, true, as long as the <laughs> if the sensors don't work. But yeah, no, I think that that's true. And I think people place a lot of faith in these people. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is another one. Um, yeah, I, I think people are are looking to these people to to sort of run their lives now in some ways. You know, uh, Google is is sort of where we go to when we have a question, and Facebook is where we go to when we want to um, socialize. It, it's pretty crazy how immersed these technologies have become in our lives. Um, and, and you're true. I think investors have given these people a lot of slack to sort of get things done and make things happen. And um, and so far they've delivered, but yeah, you're right. It's there, there are probably a lot of risks underlying there where if, if a few missteps are made that, uh, things could go wrong for some of these companies. Ben Carlson, final question for you. If you are on a plane, a cross country flight, and then suddenly, uh, a passenger collapses and a flight attendant is applying, I don't know, CPR or defibrillator and whatnot and suddenly gets up and it's like is there a cfa on board and if so what is your single best idea i know that was tortured but uh great way to close you out yeah uh i guess my single best idea would be that i that i said before i'd say for most people it's to pay more attention to your personal finance and less to your investments so i'd say um figure out how to save more money automate your finances and worry less about what's going on in the markets automate your finances so you're saying you're going to be replaced by robots you're going to be robo advisored no you know we we talk about that a lot and i think uh the people who will succeed especially in in the finance space but probably in other realms will be those who can work best with the technology and not fight it so so we're a completely 
paper-free entity as a firm. Um, I work in Grand Rapids. My firm is headquartered in New York. We stay in touch via Slack. Um, everything we do is basically online. So I think um, firms that are able to use technology to their advantage will will definitely be in high demand. And I don't think it's going to be all or nothing, but I think anything that can be autom- automated will. And so if you try to fight that automation, you'll just be making your life much harder. So I, th- I think it's, it's easier to, instead of fight it, just go with it and try to use your other free time for things that you can uh, add value beyond the technology. And your description of the virtual office place in Slack and whatnot is so beautiful. And if I may say by way of, of PDA, finally to you, sir, I've been such a fan of your of your byline, of your analysis, of the thoughtfulness of your work. Uh, you have a huge Twitter following. And it's so beautiful that I can just reach out, just a schlub like me with a podcast <laughs> over Twitter and say, Mr. Carlson, will you come on my show? And the dude is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. For all I know, you were you were fishing for muscalunge this morning. And what other tropes can I bring in? Do you drink Fago? You know, we do have Fago here. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 crazy. Technology allows you to sort of work from anywhere in the world. And so um, we have clients all over the country. And uh, like, I, you know, I work for a firm in New York. It's 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 great. And uh, yeah, allows technology has allowed me to, you know, connect with with wonderful people like you and come on your show as well. So I appreciate that. You are a gentleman and a scholar. Ben Carlson, CFA, Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Uh, you can read the blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. Definitely pick up the book, sir. Uh, it's available on Amazon and all fine outlets. And uh, I am so grateful. I hope you'll do it again. All right. Thanks a lot, Robin. Full disclosure, we are on NPR One, on iTunes at FullDRadio.com, on the Twitters at FullDRadio, and Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. We are growth at a reasonable price, high volatility, low return, no return on cash. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 